0: Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Indivina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thank you so much for joining me here today. Today's episode is a little bit different. We're flipping the script a little bit. Normally, I would interview a bunch of guests and have them tell their sides of the stories, but I realized that we're now 44 episodes into the Master Mix podcast, and I do not have a single episode where I've shared my story with you guys, and I know a lot of you guys might have questions about who I am and what I do and what my background is. So for this episode, I decided to switch it up, and I was recently on... The Recording Studio Rockstars podcast with Lid Shaw. And you should definitely check out that podcast. It's awesome. He interviews a lot of great guests as well. And uh, recently he interviewed me. And I thought that this was a cool episode to share with you guys so that you can hear a little bit about my story and learn a little bit about Lid as well and his show. And Lid is a great interviewer. He asked some really cool questions. So, you know, I think this is a better format, much better format to do it in than me asking myself questions, which would just be super, super weird. So um, I'm really excited to. For you to check out this episode. But before we get into the episode, I want to let you guys know about something really cool that's coming up in the next few weeks. On September 14th, I'm going to be hosting a free recording studio workshop. And inside of this workshop, we're going to be talking all about everything that you need to do and what goes into creating pro-sounding productions from your home studio. And we're going to focus a lot on how to record vocals, how to edit them, how to get them sounding really tight and awesome sounding. And if you're interested in checking this out, make sure to go to recordingstudioworkshop.com. And if you go there, you can sign up for the waiting list. And then once the series opens up and all the videos go live, you'll be notified about it right away. So once again, make sure to check out recordingstudioworkshop.com. So that's it for the intro. Let's just jump right into my interview with Lid Shaw. Cool, man. Well, uh, tell us a little bit more in your own
1: words about how you got started out in recording and, you know, who you are.
0: For sure. So um, I got started in music as a drummer. I've been drumming for about 25 years now, I believe. And um, so just originally uh, started playing drums just for fun, kind of as a competition with a friend of mine who, he was like the cool kid in school. And, uh, you know, he was the one that was getting all the girls and stuff like that. So I was like, you know what, man, like, I, I'm going to show you up, I'm going to get into drumming and show show you I can I can do better. And it was just like, Total a childish thing, but uh, got me into drumming and and I fell in love with it. And then um, as I got into high school, I started playing in bands and and just started playing shows and fell in love with that whole part of it. And you know, I kind of really wanted to pursue that rock star life and and you know, play in front of thousands of people and do whatever I could. And, Fortunately, I joined a band. Um, in later in high school, we were called Cheap Suits. It was like a ska punk band. And nice. We uh, we got a distribution deal through Universal in Canada and we were just touring around Canada as much as possible. That's exciting. But uh, yeah, it was it was great. It was a lot of fun. But um, somewhere along the lines, I got really frustrated with the process of songwriting because what would happen is our band would get together once or twice a week to jam, and we'd work on all these ideas and we'd work on arrangements and Come up with all these cool parts and we'd spend hours and hours workshopping it and then we'd leave practice basically just hoping that we could remember it next time we got together and inevitably the next time we got together we'd forget everything (laughs) or or we'd go back to like the first version of the arrangement and then we'd have to spend hours just trying to fix it up again and we'd lose all of that original magic so that's what got me into recording. I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I want to just capture this and and remember it. Yeah. And then we can all learn the songs and come back and just, you know, keep moving from there instead of going backwards. So that's what originally got me into it. And then I just, I started loving it. Like the more, the more and more I dug into it, the more I got interested in it. And I started finding local bands just to reach out to. And, you know, I would, I would say, Hey, like, you know, I'll record your band. If, uh, if you buy me a mic or like I'll do it for a compressor or something I'm, like that. I know and that
1: routine. I know yeah, that conversation. Yeah, right, like making right. no
0: money at all off of it, but just trying to get going and try to build that experience. And uh, it was a great way to build up the studio and to get some experience. And, uh, yeah, so I just continued doing as much as I could with that. I eventually went to school. I went to a place called Fanshawe College in London, Ontario, Canada, which is uh, a pretty cool music school. They're heavily based in, in production. And they had some awesome engineers working out of there as well. There was a guy named Jack Richardson, who was a very famous producer. His, his son, Garth Richardson, did like the first Rage Against the Machine records and all that kind of stuff. But Jack, he discovered the Guess Who. He worked with like Alice Cooper, Bob Seger, some, some other big names. There were a couple other teachers there as well that were really great to learn from. And uh, just immerse myself in as much as I could there. And uh, ultimately, when I graduated, that's when I feel the learning really started, and like working in studios seeing how things actually worked in the real world and I remember one of my first days interning at a studio in Toronto I introduced myself to the head engineer and uh he's like oh you know what's your background you go to school or anything like that said yeah you know I just graduated and he's like awesome well forget everything you just went to school for and forget all the lessons you learned there because we do things totally different here and I kind of remember in that moment being like what like how that makes no sense to me and, and he's and sure enough like that day I learned so many things that I was told not to do in school you know like driving preamps and using condenser mics on drums and all sorts of stuff that like the school was like don't do that because they were afraid that we'd ruin their gear right, you know? <laughs> but, right. but if you do it properly then you can get some awesome results and uh so after that it was just a matter of just immersing myself and, and learning from as many people as possible and try to take on whatever opportunities came my way. And that ultimately led to me working in recording studios, doing some live sound work. I was doing front of house and monitors, tour managed. Uh, I worked in audio post-production. But kind of just with time and experience, I realized like I love having a home base and being home and working with bands. and, And that's what led to me just focusing on the studio instead.
1: Well, Groovy, so you know what's funny is you talk about the ska band and, and um you know the frustration of songwriting. And I was thinking, I was in my brain, I was imagining you're like, hey guys, could this next song maybe could we do this one maybe not with the ska beat and on the up upbeat <laughs> thing? And did you the have somebody who we were, goes, who we were, were like, such a
0: non-ska band? <laughs> a non-ska we, like, band? We 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 were known as a ska band because we had one song called Ska Save My Life, but that song in itself was not a very ska song. Like we didn't have any horns or anything like that. Yeah. It was it was much much more like punk and pop and soul influence, but uh had a little bit of a reggae thing in there, I guess.
1: Did you have the guy who would go on the mic and go chk, oh,
0: yeah. do that whole thing? Yeah, yeah. I think that that was what made us a ska band. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> gotta have that.
1: I remember the first time I saw a ska band play and, and he did that and I was like, oh, that's cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, that Yeah. The, chick, chick. <laughs>
1: See, I'm not, I wasn't in a ska band, so I don't have that dialed in like you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, very cool, man. So, you know, I like to also ask our guests to come on the show and, uh, and share an inspirational quote to kind of kick off the episode. And, um, I, I liked what you said about, you know, having to unlearn things that you learned in school. Um, but I wonder, you know, if you have a quote that would get us kind of excited for hitting the studio.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I think about all the time is from my favorite movie, which is called The Bronx Tale. I feel like not too many people know about it, but it's a fantastic movie. Everyone should watch it. But the quote is, the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't do the right thing, then nothing happens. But when you do right, guess what? Good things happen. And, and so I always think about that. Like, I, I feel like everybody has a gift. Everyone has a talent and you should use it to the, the fullest of your abilities, whether that's being a musician, a photographer, even if you're good at just crunching numbers and working in an accounting firm or something like that, like if you have those skills and you can do good with it, absolutely take advantage of that and pursue it.
1: Yeah. That kind of reminds me. I don't know that I remember exactly what the quote was, but it's something like the road, the road to success is littered with the, you know, the bodies of talented geniuses or whatever. In in other words, the same (sighs) idea, like you, you, when you're in, in this and you're creating for a while and you're working on music and making records, initially, maybe you begin by seeing that, you know, so-and-so seems really talented. So-and-so is like, maybe I'm not as talented or whatever, or maybe I'm really talented, but so and so's not as talented. And then over time, you begin to see that also the people who really use their talents and put them to use, start moving forward and progressing. And then one day, you know, the, the tables are completely turned and you're like, oh, wait, my buddy who, you know, for me, I, I was the older sibling. So I, I picked up an instrument and learned how to play something first. Then my brother learned how to pay, play piano. And I remember at the very beginning, I was like, oh, he's not so good. I'm much better, you know? <laughs> but then I kind of like would rest on my laurels, you know? And, and he would, um, he, he would keep working hard at it, working hard at it. And then one day I hear him play and I was like, holy crap. He's like, he's in, he's, So far advanced from where I am. And it's, uh, it just reminds me of what you're saying, that, that idea of like, just using your talents and putting it to use and really being um, consistent with it and, and working on your skills.
0: Absolutely. And it just motivates you, right? If you're doing something that you enjoy doing, you're going to want to pursue it even further.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, You know, I guess you, you just told the story about being in a band and then realizing what you didn't like about the band to switch to recording. It took me a while to learn that recording was something I wanted to do. do. Um, I didn't do a band. I did four years of architecture college, finished, got my degree and graduated and then never worked a single day as an architect. I just realized hmm. after playing in a band after school, I was like, wait a minute. The thing that I really loved doing was playing music all through school. Um, and it, sometimes it's hard to know right away what it is that you really love.
0: Absolutely. I think for me like, I, I guess I was in the same boat. Like, I, I thought that I was going to get into like marketing or something as well. And and I, I didn't really know. Like, I also had an interest in TV and technology and stuff. And I, I kind of in high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to pursue. But I think a major moment for me was when I was playing in bands, I had this one show. And after the show, these two girls came up to me and they're like, hey, um, we want you to see something. And and. They showed me that the hey, they got the story the-
1: going, man. <laughs> it's a PG story. Don't
0: worry. But, um, but uh, they ended up getting matching tattoos of my band's logo. And <laughs> I was like, what? Like, why? Why? I don't even have that. And it turns out that they became friends at one of my band's shows, and, and they bonded over a lot of things. And they were actually, they bonded over the fact that they were both actually suicidal at one point. And through my band's music, they were able to find happiness and have fun at the shows, and wow. like change their perspective. And so when they told me that story, like it really hit me, and I kind of realized like I'm not just making music, have fun on stage, and and play around and bash the crap out of some drums. Like I, like I'm actually impacting people here. And in that moment, I just realized like, okay, like my mission in life, I think my purpose is to. To help people through the power of music, however that is, like whether I'm a musician on stage, making sure that people have the greatest time in the crowd, or if I'm in the studio, it's helping bands see their ideas through and, and complete their songs or allow those songs to go out and do the same thing that influenced these girls and help these girls, right? So I think that uh, that's something that really motivates me to keep going and to push music and, and to help people through music however I yeah
1: can. well it's very cool I mean what you've created with master your mix is really well done and and my very first impression is that you just have a great focus and skill at teaching people and trying to help which is awesome Thank you. And, and we're gonna get into a bunch of that I thought before we do it um, before we get sort of deep in the weeds tell us a little bit about your studio right now like I I'm, we're, we've got a little bit of video going now as we're doing the interview and I can see you've got a cool drum. It looks like an electronic kit in the background. Yeah, there. so
0: I mean, currently I'm in my little home studio space. So I live I live in a condo, so unfortunately I can't make too much noise here. But um, I kind of have a duplicate setup here, as I do. Like I have a commercial space in Toronto as well, and that's where I can make all my noise. But it's a it's a pretty similar setup in a lot of ways. Um, at the foundation of it, it's just like my my MacBook with a Universal Audio Apollo Quad. I monitor off of, off of some KRK Rocket Eights, which and some people hate but i absolutely love and i've just listened to them so much that i've got to know exactly what to expect from them yeah um and then at the studio that's where i've got all my mics and i've just got enough mics to get going for a drum kit i don't really believe in having like too many options cuz it just overwhelms me and i'd rather just i i know what to expect out of the mics i use all the time and then i've also got some uh outboard gear just some uh preamps i have the Cappy preamps, I love those oh, a lot. Yeah,
1: yeah, those are great. I, I, I um have not had. It's Jeff, right down here in yeah. Nashville. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to have him on the podcast. I want to talk to him and. Learn He'd be more great. About
0: it. That guy knows so much about all those API boards. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, I've got some of the Cappy preamps, uh, some of the Hairball Audio stuff as well that I that I built, and that that in itself is just like a f- awesome thing to to go through and just like discovering the electronics and and building it and making it work. So I I think those are the DIY ones, right? Yeah, those are like the DIY kits. Um, And uh, so I built all that, built my lunchbox full of preamps. And then I've got a Sam Audio LA-2A clone. And they also have a SSL bus compressor clone that I have as well. Um, A Distressor, distressor, a couple DBX-163 compressors, some Joe Meek uh, mics and compressors as well. That's pretty much it. It's a pretty simple setup. But I find that, the the as time goes on, I'm using less and less of that outboard stuff. Mm-hmm. And especially with the UA stuff, it's just really allowed me to streamline my process and go in the box. And the plugins are pretty close. Like, you know, like whether they're a one for one clone or not, that doesn't really matter to me. It's a matter of if I can get the sound. And right. I have compared, like I use the Distressor plugin all the time and I've compared it against mine. And, and it's like, what maybe like a five on the threshold of my hardware unit is like a six on, on the plugin and it gets me the same thing. So it's so close that like, I hate that I have the distressor in my racks just sitting there now, but I mean, who now knows, I've got,
1: maybe that's even uh, just a gain change because of the interface the you know, the, the A to D interface. Yeah, it could be or something like that, but, but uh, you know, I, I I've been using the, the arouser, arouser here too.
0: I, I oh, and yeah, it's great. I haven't tried out the arouser yet, but uh I've heard a lot of good things about that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I used the Distressor many times on records, but I never had one of my own, and I kind of missed it for a long time. And then I just got the Arouser recently, and it was it just makes me so happy to have it, you know, to be able to use it on on my Pro Tools sessions. Um, yeah, it's just a super useful compressor. Um, Not that we have to geek out on it too much, but rockstars, if you haven't ever used a Distressor, and you're wondering why, it's just it's got a lot of variety within what you can do and you can get so much control and you can make things so screaming loud if you want to. It's just a lot of fun.
0: And the arouser has a transient shaper in there as well, right?
1: Yeah. Which just kind of lets more punch through or something like Mm -hmm. that. I mean, it's one of those knobs, like so many knobs we deal with where you're like, I don't really know what this does. I just know if I turn (laughs) it this way, it sounds cool, you know, which is really all you need to know. Um, Tell us about your podcast and and your website and everything. Master your mix because, uh, like you said, you're doing su- such a cool thing for everybody. Teaching. Um, when did you start that? And and um, you know, giving us give us an introduction to it.
0: Sure. So I started Master Your Mix. I guess it was about two and a half years ago. So it's it's still fairly new. Um, but it just kind of started as a, as a way of just helping people. Um, I was. I always found that whenever I was in the studio, there'd be one guy in the band who had had the recording interface and would be like looking over my shoulder, asking questions about, you know, how do you what, are you what are you doing over there? And and so, like, I always geeked out over those conversations, trying to help people out. And so I thought, you know, this is a cool way to give back to people, put it online, and also like I do a lot of mastering work as well, and it's kind of cool to be able to coach people through mixing. And you know, if people have questions, they can. Go to the website, learn a little bit more about what frequencies to pay attention to, all that kind of stuff, and and get their mixes to a point where they're polished and they're happy. And then if they send me some mastering work, that's awesome. And but at least like at that point, I know kind of what they've worked with, what they've done to their mix, because they've gone through some of the stuff I've taught them. Um, so it's a pretty cool, pretty cool way to give back and kind of it all comes circular in a way. Um, but uh, yeah, it kind of just goes back again to what I was talking about earlier about just how I want to help people through music and. I think that there's so many people that can get sounds into the box, but then they don't know what to do with it. They, they just don't know how to process it and get the songs, the sounds that they hear in their head to come out in their mixes. And so that's ultimately what I'm trying to do is just help people get the songs done and then to a point where they're proud of and they, they'll actually release it. And then, then that, those songs can have the impact that you know, they should.
1: That's pretty cool. Have you had a good connection with your, um, your students, your audience where you get to, you get the sort of the pleasure of seeing the results of that teaching where you're seeing people release stuff?
0: Absolutely. Like I I had one student who he, he actually did some one-on-one stuff with me in Toronto. And when he first started, he had no idea what he was doing. And, you know, he's just like, I just want to like do some hip hop stuff. And and I'm not even like a, a hip hop guy really, but, um, but you know, just walking him through the process of getting the sounds in and, and mixing them and everything. And within about a year and a half or so of, of him learning through me, he, he ended up messaging me one day and he's like, Hey man, like, just want to let you know, like, I, I just opened up a new studio in in Niagara Falls, which, you know, is close to where I live. Cool. And, uh, and now he's doing it full time and it's, it's amazing. Like he, he's, he's crushing it. He's doing amazing work. And he, he constantly sends me stuff to, to listen to and and i love i love that back and forth of of working with my students as well and just seeing the the progression and and how people are able to take their ideas and turn them into something wicked
1: you talked about you know having this cool outboard gear in the studio and everybody who's listening is like oh man that sounds sweet i, I, I wish i had all that <laughs> stuff but then you followed up with yeah, I'm not using it so much. I'm I'm really gravitating towards the plugins and using UA. Maybe you could describe a little bit specifically what does that mean? So somebody's like, wait, where where and when do you not use the hardware, but you use a plugin instead?
0: Yeah. So I I pretty much only at this point I use my outboard gear whenever I'm tracking. So I use my preamps, obviously, to get sound in. And uh I might add some compression on the way in. Um I try not to go too extreme with with adding compression on the way in. Um, but if, if, if it's a project that I know I'm going to be mixing, then I might go a little bit more cause I, I know what I want that end result to be. Right. Right. But, uh, that's pretty much the only time I use my upward gear. And then when it gets into the box, I love being efficient. I love having the recall. And especially because like, like I said about the distressor thing, like I, sure, I could use my distressor, but then I got to recall it and, right. you know, spend the time finding the pictures that I took of, of the session and dialing in those settings. and. And also like my studio is about a half hour away from where I live. So because I have the same sort of gear at home, I can just quickly dial it up when I have the the plugins. And, and to me, that's just way more efficient and I'd rather work that way. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much
1: that. it. Oh, I was going to say, I'm with you on that. Um, I have a few different workspaces. I got an office in the house, got the studio, got my laptop, which might be with me. I got my phone, which is like, you know, How much work is how much of our work is just simply responding to an email and finding that Dropbox link, copying the link and sending it to somebody and the ability to easily knock things out from wherever you are and not be sort of disrupted by it or make people wait forever is really helpful.
0: Absolutely. It's just it's just so much more efficient to to have the plugins and I think that they're pretty close. So yeah. You know, that's uh, good enough for
1: me. Do you ever use plugins in the tracking stage? I, I think you audio um Apollo allows you to record through plugins, right?
0: Yeah. So I'll I don't have any outboard EQs. So I'll I'll use the Apollo EQs more than anything. Um occasionally I'll use some of their compressors as well, just because with the virtual world, you can have as many as you want. So, you know, I only have the one Distressor and the one LA-2A and the, you know, so now I can have way more if I want. Yeah. And then it's pretty great.
1: And then you're using them probably because, I mean, you've got them. And if you've got, if you're doing a one mic overdub or something, you've got the mic running through a pre, through the compressor into the Apollo. And then at that point, it's like, hmm, what else do I want? A little bit of EQ or a little bit of Mm -hmm. something. Yeah. So it makes sense. Um, cool, man. Uh, your podcast—you've you, your podcast—you focus on teaching stuff that you're learning, but you've also done some interviews. I think you mentioned that you've had guests on, like Sylvia Massey and David Bottrell. and I wondered if you wanted to share maybe anything you remember learning from Sylvia, for example. First off,
0: Sylvia is just crazy. Like, I I, I love that woman. She's got like the most creative approach to things. Um, I think with her, I had read her book before I did the interview, and I would highly recommend her book to anyone who's listening to this. Um, to me, it was just a matter of like, I, I love that there's no boundaries when it comes to her. It's like if a band has some weird, wacky idea, she's like, let's do it. You know, and I think that that goes a long way in the studio because we're creating these experiences for the artists that come through and they're coming to us because they they trust our expertise and they know that we can get them the sounds they're going for. But then beyond that, like there's this magic of being in the studio and working with, uh, working in the studio and having all the gear and just having fun. Um, if you make the seri- if you make the studio too serious of a experience, then it it just becomes a bummer in a way. Yeah. So you well, know, I, I, it
1: tends to want to make itself that way, doesn't it? Especially when people's careers and money are on the line and all that kind of stuff. People's ambitions.
0: Hmm. So that's what I love about Sylvia. She's she's just like okay, a band's got a weird idea. Let's, let's do it. Let's have a great time. And they'll, they'll remember that, you know? And uh, I think at the time, I don't know if she's actually done this, but she was working on trying to figure out how to send signals through satellites to the moon. And she wanted to have like a moon delay.
1: Nice, I like that.
0: <laughs> when she told me that, I was like, how? what?
1: <laughs> Who thinks that way? I like the moon delay idea. Um, I saw a video where she did a pickle filter Yep. And it was like the the whole guitar sound, maybe it was on its way from the amp to the speaker or something, but it went went through wires into a pickle and then out the other end of a pickle. And then they were jamming out. And I think the pickle exploded in a f- <laughs> bolt of lightning or something like that, you know? But um, yeah. I, th- I just looked it up again because I had forgotten the title. It's Recording Unhinged. <clears throat> Excuse me. I didn't say that very clearly. Recording Unhinged, I think, is Sylvia's book, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really pretty amazing looking. I haven't read it yet. I've seen pictures of it, but the, it's full of these incredible cartoons um, that look like, um, oh, goodness, I just blanked on his name. Um, who's the cartoonist from, like, the, uh, the uh, underground comics era and everything? Uh, I, I can't
0: remember. Oh, it's gonna uh, come not of, a big you know, comic I, book. But I think she made them. Oh, really? I think she drew all of that stuff. I could be wrong. That's
1: cool. Well, anyway, whoever's listening, they will be like, "Come on, legit so and so," and it'll come back to me here in a minute. But just, just a really, really cool looking book. And you know, when you've got cool books in the studio, it's kind of nice to have something that looks great that get that everybody's picking up while they're hanging out in the studio. So,
0: mm-hmm. and then some, and people will look at those books and be like, "Oh, can we try this? Like, yeah, yeah there you know, you go. have some fun with it."
1: And then you're like, "Cool, man, just booked an extra day." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Brilliant. Um
1: now the one of the other people on your show David Bottrell, who I think is doing a bunch of rock records and stuff too um tell us what you remember about uh interviewing him and what what you learned from him.
0: David was it's been a while since we, we since we chatted but I I just love his approach to working with bands and just working on the arrangements and and getting the songs right before tracking everything. And um he's just got a great attention to detail and in a way like David he shares the same sentiment as Jack Richardson, who who I shadowed for years. And um, to go back to to when I was working with Jack, one of the best lessons I ever learned as an engineer was working with Jack. And and I was shadowing him for a while, and you know he was doing a lot of great work. And and one day I finally got the courage to say, "Hey Jack, do you mind listening to a mix that I just recently finished? And can you, can you let me know what you think?" And he said, "Cool, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to it. But if the song sucks, what difference does the mix make?" And and I just like kind of set me back a little bit because you know well he did he assume
1: that your song sucked before he listened to it i don't know but
0: (laughs) i don't know but like but i but i appreciated that bluntness because it it was so true you know If, if you can you can spend all the time in the world working on a mix and making it sound super polished but if the song's not there no one's gonna listen to it anyway they might listen to it once but it's not gonna advance your career no one's gonna listen to that mix and be like oh that's a great mix like it made that horrible song so much better like no nobody listens to it that way. That's
1: so true. And what's funny is the opposite of that is when the song is inspiring, you could give a shit about whether it sounds like the entire audio has a blanket over it or something. It's just like, oh, for sure. it's just cool. It might even be cooler that way. You yeah. Might be like, well,
0: you know, I, I think about that all the time, listening back to some Motown stuff. Like I love all that Motown stuff. And and by today's standards, like they're crappy recordings and they're crappy mixes in a, in a lot of ways, but the songs are so good. And you don't even pay attention to the mix. You're just you're just lost in the song. Yeah. It's kind of like that it's kind of like that thing in in live sound where it's like if the band sounds amazing, they everyone thinks it's the band that that's great. But if the band sucks and there's like feedback and everything, like they're like, "Oh man, that sound guy sucks." Ah. You know, like <laughs> the sound guy gets no recognition there. I know.
1: <laughs> you need to put up like a wire cage around yourself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was I was having a beer with a friend of mine uh just friday night actually and we were listening and they played the strokes um last night came on mm-hmm. the speakers and it's playing and we're listening and then i was pointed out to him i was like dude listen check it out chuck it's like listen you can't even hear the drums in this mix you know and it was mm-hmm. like but it was super exciting sounding but when you really zoned in on it you're like hmm, don't went during the singing you you almost don't hear any drums you just hear like there's this wash of stuff in the background and it reminded me that same thing. It's like this when the song's groovy, when the vibe's right, um, what constitutes a great sound and a great mix may not be what you think it is. Mm-hmm. You
0: know, Absolutely. Might be the, f- the, song, the song goes uh, very far away. It's, it's 90, 90% of the mix right there.
1: Yeah. So um, you, one of your new books, I believe it is, is um, The Mixing Mindset, right? Or is that? The, yeah. yeah. So tell us about that, man. Give us an introduction to The Mixing Mindset. What is so, it? for sure.
0: So, The Mixing Mindset is a book that I wrote, uh, came out in January of this year, which is 2019. Um, and uh, it kind of started just as an extension of some of the work I was doing with Master Your Mix and just trying to help people make more music and music that they're proud of. And kind of going back to that idea of a lot of artists I know are writing these songs, they've got the interfaces, they're getting the music in the box, but then they don't know what to do from there. And I know a lot of guys that are just sitting on music because they don't know what to do with it. So, what I wanted to do with the book was give people a formula, like a, a process that I, that at least I follow in every single mix from beginning to end in terms of the um, I have six steps that I that I tend to focus on. So I the six steps that I go through every single mix in order are that I organize my tracks. So when I'm organizing my tracks, I always uh, deal with things like track naming, color coding, grouping, uh, getting rid of regions that I don't need, condensing tracks, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I start with organizing, then I do all my routing. And then when it comes to routing, I always work in the same way. So I always have my individual instruments going to a group. So all of my drums will go to a drum group, all my guitars go to a guitar group, vocals go to a guitar, uh, vocals go to a vocal group, et cetera. And then all of those groups then go to a master bus. And the reason I like to work in that way is because then I can touch on any of those tracks at various points, so I can either work on a micro level of working on the individual drums, or if I want all the drums to be louder, I can work on them there or compress the drums there, or I can work on the whole mix and, and kind of press the mix or whatever to maybe compress the drums, that kind of thing. So that's the routing stage. From there, I always work off of, it. I always create a rough mix. When it comes to the rough mix, it's very simple. I, I try not to overthink the rough mix stage. I basically will listen to some reference tracks that the band likes uh, and songs that I know very well. And I use that as like my guideline for the rest of the mix in terms of sonic balance, um, the balance between track levels of the different instruments. Um, and then I just simply throw up the faders to get them to like the, the balance that I think feels good. And I'll work on panning, check for phase, all that kind of stuff. And then that kind of works as a foundation for the next step, which is really digging into the the, the processing and getting into the EQ and compression and, and all that stuff and just really polishing up the mix. So in that stage, sorry sorry oh, I was gonna say
1: uh, so this is I think we just hit stage four, right? Um, yeah. And when you're setting up all your routing, are you already putting EQs on individual tracks or do you kind of even wait till a little I, later I just in the wait process? I
0: wait till the end. Like sometimes what I tend to do is I'll, I'll load things into a template that I've got that has all the plugins there, but they're all bypassed and they're all flattened. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't worry about, like, I, I tend to find that whenever I have templates that have like pre-EQ things, I just end up hating it or it just, it's yeah. a distraction. Yeah, I'd like to know what's actually there well, and, and then build from there.
1: We both come from like an audio school background. And one of the things they teach you in audio school is zero the board, zero the console, zero the console, mm-hmm. right? So in between sessions, you have to go back and reset all the EQs to zeros. And stuff yeah. like that, so you're not leaving pre EQ for for the next engineer's next song, next mix.
0: Yeah, and some and sometimes if someone's sending you a track, like you don't know what they did to it on the way in, so like there might be a boatload of EQ already. And you know, if you have a a preset in your template that has like a massive top end boost or whatever, like it's just going to be super distracting to start. So you might as well zero the board and start fresh. Um. So yeah, that's basically like when I when I process tracks. I go through a series of questions that I ask myself every time about each instrument and I work in the same order. And this is something that I picked up when I was working in the audio post industry. I remember at at the time I had had just come out of like doing some of my own work and it, it would take me days to finish mixes. And then I ended up getting this job at an audio post place and I was working as a mix assistant. And the first day I loaded up this mix session and it had like, I don't know, like 200 tracks or something like that. And, and it was like a two-hour film. And I remember saying to the, the head engineer there, like, how much time do we have to work on this thing? It's like, oh, we got to do this in two days. And, and I was like, two days? Like, it, it takes me like two, three days to finish a three-minute song with like 20 tracks. Like, what? How, how is this possible? And so he's the, he's the person, his name is Alan Ormerod. He's the guy who I really learned this concept of having a repeatable workflow from. Um, and he did the same thing every time he like analyzes tracks a certain way. He, he worked in the same order every single time. And at the end of all of that, he'd be like, cool. I, I think it sounds good enough to like show the client. Let's see what they think. Yeah. And, and then from there, like we'd fine tune. But so I started implementing a lot of that into my mixing workflow. And, uh, that's what this whole book is about really. That's interesting. So, um, my
1: my brother did something like that. He came from the music world, um, as a performing musician, as a composer, And he got hired on to do a TV show and it was, his story was funny because he was kind of like, yes, I can do Pro Tools, even though he didn't really know how to use it. And (laughs) then he calls me up and he's like, Lidge, what do I need to know about Pro Tools? And, you know, first day at the, at the job is 200 tracks and everything's due, you know, in an hour or whatever. Um, And he would describe those, those meetings with the clients, you know, the, the corporate meeting room and you press play and everything. And and like, if the tambourine sound didn't land when the tambourine was hit, everybody would freak out.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway,
1: that's funny yeah. to hear you talk about that story too.
0: Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of like the foundation of it. Cause once I realized that it just made me realize like, yeah, I, at the time I was just bouncing between tracks and whatever caught my attention was what I worked on. And that's an awful way to work. Like, I think there's a lot of people who approach their mixes more from a perspective of like, what problems do I hear rather than what does the mix actually need? Yeah. And cause I think when you, when you search for, when, when you are looking for problems, you're always going to find a problem and you're eventually going to go so far that you undo all of your hard work because you're just, you don't, you don't know when you're done. You don't know how to keep track of your progress. You don't know um, what you're really listening for and what the song actually needs. Like you're just, you're just looking for problems. So, you know, I I like having this approach of, here are the steps I do and I can just keep track of where I'm at and what the, I know what the next step is going to be. I know what I'm going to ask myself in terms of, you know, what does this track need? And then I move on from there and I just keep going until I get to the very end. Uh, and then at that point I'm done. And I sit back and I send it to the client and see what they say. And that was, was that step five in there or step so, six? So sorry, or yeah, sorry. I kind of uh, jumbled up that whole process there. Oh, so, that's all right. Yeah. So uh, first step is organization. Second step is routing. Third step is rough mix. Fourth step is the heavy lifting. Then the fifth step is when I add all sorts of, uh, well, if, if it needs it, I'll add special effects into the, into the mix. So adding things like uh, delay or reverb, that kind of stuff. Um, I think that there's a, a big tendency a lot of people have, especially early on, when they discover reverb, everyone wants to add tons of reverb to oh, their Yeah, tracks. yeah. Well, we, well, let's it's like
1: let's get into that in a minute after the break, too, because you got a great video that really gets deep into that topic.
0: Perfect. Yeah. So I, I just think like so many people just jump to these effects. And it's like, oh, but that sounds mixed. You know, when I listen to recordings, there's there's reverb. So I guess that's what it needs. But you can definitely go too far with reverb and delay and any other effect, really. Yeah. Um, so I always like to just Think of it from an outside perspective, like what does the song actually need? What's it gonna add when I add these effects to the mix? Is it gonna add energy to it? Is it gonna create size and depth and and width in the mix or some modulation? Like what is it doing? Does it really need it? And so I kind of go through a series of questions there. And then lastly, I get into automation. And automation is just the final little bit, icing on the cake, just like boosting choruses when they need it, adding a little bit more energy in there. Um, accenting certain hits, automating maybe a delay throw on a vocal, that kind of thing. Um, but pretty much at the end of the automation stage, I'm done. If yeah. I, once I've gone through every track, I'm like, okay, I, I have to be done. Like, I can't if I go back now, I know I'm going to undo my hard work. Yeah, step seven, so then, seven is
1: is the notes that come back in email from the client, right?
0: Exactly. So then I'll send it to them and uh, see what they say. And and often the notes that you get back from people aren't hey, can you boost, like, 520 hertz on the guitar or whatever? Like, nobody's getting super technical. At least most musicians aren't. Um, most of the time, it's just, like, the volumes. Like, it's like, can you can you turn up the guitar? Or, like, my vocals are buried, that kind of thing. Um, but I, but I find a really good tip for helping with reducing revisions is find reference tracks that the band likes and use those as your guideline, because that's what they're comparing your mix to. So, right, like, right. Um, so, for example, like, I, I recently... Was working on a band that uh, I thought sounded a lot like Green Day, and so I kept referring to Green Day as we were working. And the band didn't like Green Day, <laughs> and and they would constantly be like, "Oh, like we're into like this band, Alkaline Trio or Strung Out." And so when I started mixing, like I knew those bands and I I like those bands too. So when I started mixing, I started listening to those bands and I realized like the the balance of tracks in those mixes was very different than a Green Day mix. Right, and so. I knew the band didn't want the vocals to be super loud. They, want, they wanted them to be a little more tucked back and have the guitars more forward. And that's what I used as the foundation for my mix and, and tried to get that similarity there between the two tracks. And ultimately, on that project, I had no mix notes, which was amazing.
1: Well, that's pretty cool. I You know, it reminds me of a time I was working with a female artist, and she was trying to describe stuff she wanted in the track. Then finally, she plays <laughs> me a reference. And in the reference... The vocal was just really dark sounding, you know, and so i I was like, "Oh, you I mean kind of like this and then I just took the high end and just kind of rolled it off of the of her vocal, and all of a sudden she loved it and it was like I never would have done that otherwise. I wouldn't have thought to just like cut out all the highs, you know, mm-hmm. just just a random thing, but it reminded me of that um the the power of reference tracks and especially when you're mixing, it just really helps so much it's so easy to get um you know off on a tangent or derailed or. You know, you get the human brain and the human ear gets used to whatever it's hearing so quickly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, um, I wanted to make a comment, too. Uh, like, I came up with a great quote based on what you're saying. It's uh, the problem with looking for problems, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it reminds me, too, of, like, listening to that Strokes record. I, I encourage you rock stars to, to listen to songs on the radio or on, you know, streaming or whatever and listen for them in terms of what – what does this mix sound like? And if I was working on the mix right now, would I jump in there and adjust something? Because I think you can be really surprised at how often you would continue to work on something that's already a hit song and probably screw it up, which is Mm -hmm. that, like you're saying, it's like knowing when to um, let the song be where it's at or the mix, because it has what it needs to have the right feel for that track and not just keep looking for problems. Like you could probably listen and be like, "Ooh, you know what? I could bring out some more point on that kick drum." Or "Ooh, you know what? This uh, we need a special effect, or we need to turn turn down that tambourine, or whatever it is." Yeah. And you would you would end up like um, kind of spoiling what was so cool about about. The for notes. sure,
0: and that same thing applies when you're in the tracking stage too. Like I think there's a lot of people who want to add lots of layers of stuff, and and it's a really good thing to take that. Ten thousand foot view of it, and just be like, okay, well, do I have the feel of this track here? its it is it is it, is it there? Is the sentiment of the song there? And if that's the case, then leave it. Yeah, don't just add things for the sake of adding things.
1: Indeed. Tell us about uh, you know we were just talking about reverb versus delay in mixing, and you've got a great blog post and YouTube article where you really break it down. But I thought we'd steal the show and make you tell us right here on the podcast. <laughs> no, tell us yeah. tell us what that means cuz I remember learning a little bit about and discovering that um at one point in, in in your teaching I'm like, "Yep, you're hitting hitting the nail right on the head." So, ready set go.
0: Thank you. Well, yeah, um I I think when it comes to reverb, like reverb is a long drawn out sound and it's very easy to make your mixes sound muddy when you have these long drawn out notes overlapping everything else in the mix. And Whereas delay is like a quick repeat and it's gone. Yeah. And so when you're looking to add depth to your mix, like both of these tools can do it, but one of them is way cleaner than the other. Yeah. And that is reverb. And, sorry, that's and, delay. and
1: also reverb is actually just a sh- shitload of delays.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're it's right. It's like a it's, it's lot the reflections of delays. Of the, yeah. It's a lot of delays bouncing off everything else in the room kind of thing. Right. So. Yeah, I I generally tend to lean a little bit more towards delay to add the depth in there, but it's in and out, and it's not overlapping everything, and it makes your mix sound a lot cleaner. Um, especially if you're, I mean, if you're working on like a big power ballad or something like that where the tempo is slow, then reverb can fill in those gaps really nicely, but I tend to work on a lot of faster stuff, mm-hmm. and... If you have those long notes drawn out, it just it just makes everything sound like mud. Yeah, so yeah, or you as know. you
1: mentioned, I think on the video, it's like if you're doing a, a Mazzy Star or or Adele's new single, then maybe like big 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 reverb is the right thing. But especially for rock, it it just can get in the way.
0: Yeah, I mean back in the '80s when everything was a ballad and like you know there was so much space and the tempos were slower, it was it was a great tool, you know. But I think now things have picked up a little bit more and and or at least in a lot of pop music and. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very much into like a lot of pop punk and that kind of stuff. So it's all fast tempos. And and if you have these long notes drawing out throughout the whole mix, it it just makes everything sound muddy. So, you know, delay is often a better choice.
1: Yeah. And, um, do you want to describe what sort of a delay might be a cool one to, to start out with?
0: Yeah. So I tend to, um, I, I tend to always make sure that my delays are synced to the tempo of the song, if, 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 if it's an effect. Like if I'm going for like a, a repeat of a specific word, then you know, I make sure it's either a quarter note or a 16th note or eighth note, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but for singing, instead of reverb, especially with the faster stuff, I'll often have like a slap delay or um, I'll do two different delays, like one on the left side, one on the right, maybe set to like 110 milliseconds on the left and 220 on the right or something like that just to give you this idea of the bounce back that you would hear in a, in a venue and uh, to give that depth, but it's in and out really quickly. And I don't really use a lot of feedback on it. So it's just the one repeat and that's it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it just, I guess, just to reiterate what you're saying, it gives the effect of your voice leaving your, your, your body and going over and hitting the wall and then bouncing back. So it gives a sense of space and sometimes a little bit in a subtle way, our, our human brain is so tuned into to picking up on those visualization and, and spatial cues that that's enough to just give a sense that the this is this voice is in the space with the band now. Absolutely. <clears throat> okay. Cool. Um, and then uh, any anything else about reverb or delays that that would be um, that you want to touch on, or should we move on to another another one?
0: Um, I guess if you, if you are going to use reverb to create, like I I use reverb a lot on drums, like Mm -hmm. just to simulate the sound of a bigger room. If if you're recording in a small bedroom, you're not going to have the depth there. So, you know, you can get away with having some reverb on drums. Um, but I tend to use kind of in a similar fashion. I'll use like gated reverbs on snares so that you get that quick blast of, of room and then it's gone. And then I'll try to, I'll try to sync that up with the tempo of the song as well. Um, I think that that's a really important thing. It's just like, make sure that you're using delay times or reverb times that work with the tempo, because then you can, you can shorten it to fix or to fit your mix.
1: Yeah. It's almost like, um, learning to think about these effects as part of what's going on with the music in a song. And then, and then extending that learning to think about everything in your mix, as an extension of what's going on with the music, which is an extension of what's going on with the song. Mm -hmm. And like the places we get ourselves into trouble is when we begin to think about them as two different things. It's like, got the song, got the mix, effects is this other thing that just kind of makes it cool. And it's not, it's like, you know, it's as simple as this, the tempo of the song and putting a reverb on or putting the wrong kind of delay on changes the quality of the sustain of the note of the instrument you know, and Mm -hmm. then, and if it doesn't fit, it makes it sound bad. And if it does fit, it makes it sound hopefully great.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's like comparing it to the live sound world, you know, live sound is one of the hardest things to mix because every room is different. Yeah. And, and you're often blasting sound into these big rooms that has a lot of mud bouncing around. And, and that, that's why it's like, you know, when you watch a band in an arena, it's, it's hard to make it sound really nice and clean and polished because There's sound bouncing everywhere. And that's essentially what reverb is. You know, it's creating that space and and that size. But, you know, you can make things sound a lot tighter and more polished and clean by having a shorter reverb time or shorter delay.
1: It's interesting. I I, I suppose live mix engineers probably also have templates and have to because of speed. But at the same time, based on what you just described, you really have to trust your ears because each space is different from the last one. And, um, you know, a thing about live sound is it's, sound reinforcement. So you have, uh, mm-hmm. depending on how, if it's a really big venue, you're not hearing much coming off of the stage. So everything's coming out of the monitors, but if it's like a small or medium sized room, you hear the band coming and what you hear out of the PA is like, is additive. Whereas in the studio, it's all you get, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, we, we don't have to go too much into live stuff, but you also have another great video where you talk about, um, ways to EQ a vocal in a mix and, I thought it was really cool, man. I thought you really hit on some great points and details about places that you, um, you really kind of just did some subtractive EQ and then one last little bit of additive EQ. But I wondered if you want to kind of get into that topic and break that down a little bit.
0: Sure. I mean, that's kind of my general approach to adding EQ to begin with. Um, I, I prefer to do more subtractive more as a way of like cleaning up the track and then adding whatever is necessary at the end. Yeah. Because um, if you just keep adding EQ to everything, it's all going to be, it's additive. It's going to, between all the tracks, you're just going to be constantly adding more and more gain and you're going to lose your headroom. And it's just, yeah, it, it makes it harder to mix. Well, and you, it, you might also
1: be just uh, doing stuff, doing too much to something, whereas... Subtractive, uh, which can also be viewed as corrective EQ, is just simply trying to address something that maybe got into the mic that didn't need to be there,
0: right? Of course. So I think that that allows you to really clean things up. And, you know, if you, you you can keep adding like top end and top end and top end on all these tracks, but eventually you're going to just end up with something that's super bright when maybe all you needed to do in the first place was just cut some top end on one instrument. Right. and, And you get the same result.
1: Yeah. And also when you talked about um, setting up your routing, you know, let's say the drums just need to be a little bit brighter. It's a different sound if you sort of brighten the stereo mix of the drums than if you go in and try and brighten every single close mic of the drums, you start to get a lot more phasing between all these different mics and stuff. But let's let's, let's just quicker too. <laughs> let's, let's, so so with that concept in mind, um, corrective EQ is about sort of like pulling out things that you don't like in a sound and, and sort of... Um, removing them from distracting what you're hearing uh keep talking about some of the different frequencies that you find really useful as a just I know every vocal is different every mix is different but it's yeah it was great in the video to hear you talk about these as great starting points and so many of our listeners are just like it's great to hear you guys talk about this but come on come on give me some details so (laughs) give us some of those frequencies that are fun to go try out right now and 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 take a look at
0: Yeah, so I mean, the first thing when it comes to the subtractive stuff is, is really trying to clean up some of the low end rumble of your room. Um, I find that with a lot of voices, you don't need that like room tone that's kind of in there, right? So I'll usually use a high pass filter, kind of clean up any of that rumble. Uh, My approach to high pass filtering is that I usually just insert it, start to sweep the frequencies until things start to sound thin, and then I'll back it off. Um, And I, I generally do that with most of my tracks uh, just to clean it up. And then from there, you know, I'll, I'll think about, well, what's the proximity effect on the vocal going to be like, is it, is, am I hearing that? Um, if, if I am hearing that extra boost in low end, especially when the singer moves closer and further away from the mic, like, like I'm talking right now, maybe six inches from my mic, but if a singer moves closer, all of a sudden you're going to start to hear more low end. Right? Right, right. So that, that can happen in the studio. So if that starts to happen, then I'll tend to look around around 150 hertz that seems to be a range where you'll get a lot of that proximity and either using like a dynamic eq uh that's a great way to do it if like the if it's a uh proximity effect thing where it only happens for like a split second um you can use that to control that range there or if it's kind of constant then you can have a static static cut there um then moving on from there, I tend, to, I tend to find that a lot of singers have nasally voices as well. Mm-hmm. That, that seems to be the one spot that, not like, singers, t- not you, man. You're like very white. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding.
1: I got plenty of nasal. I'm all nose.
0: Yeah. So, in terms of like the nasally sounds, or like if, you, if you're hearing like a lo fi kind of radio sound, then um, usually that's kind of in the one to two and a half K range. So I'll sweep in there, just see if there's anything that's really jumping out and then give it a slight cut. You don't want to cut it all because there's a lot of, uh, you get a lot of definition of the voice in that range too. And if you just cut it, it's going to sound weird and unnatural. But um, if you have a narrow cue size and you're just doing like a narrow cut, you can often get rid of those like harsh frequencies that jump out in there. That's one of the things I
1: remember learning early on from Brad Jones is he pointed out to me that um, with a narrow cue, you can cut a lot more than you expect and it's very subtle. You know mm-hmm. if you, if you boost it a lot with a narrow narrow EQ you'd be like, "Ooh, I hear that," you know. Um, yeah, that really jumps out. But then like um boosting uh, it's almost like an automatic place to start is like, "Hey, if you're going to cut explore narrower EQs, if you're going to boost explore wider EQs." Um I don't want to make it a blanket statement because of course there's a, a a time to do everything differently. But those are a couple of good starting points as far as like understanding where the cuts and boosts could be useful. I think, right?
0: Hmm. Um. Yeah. And you don't want to. And when you're like when you're searching for frequencies that you need to boost and cut, again, you you also don't want to use that narrow cue because it's gonna everything's gonna sound bad to you. Right. Right. It, you know, it's this like really whistly sound that's gonna jump out. So you definitely want to go a little bit wider. Find the range that is jumping out at you and then kind of refine from there and find those super problematic frequencies. Because yeah, if you, if you're going with like all narrow cue, you, everything's going to sound bad.
1: Yeah. Well, let's say that one more time. So um, don't have a super narrow cue, have sort of a, but, but not super wide either. Um, I, I don't have a number, but, <laughs> uh, but
0: do yeah, it, it depends on the plugin too, right? Right,
1: right. So, but, but rock stars boost that and sweep it around until you hear a frequency that you don't like and there may be a fuse, so don't worry about that. But like, let's say you're looking for the honk, sweep it around until you hear the honky tone, and then pull that back down to zero, and then pull that lower um, to start removing it, and then adjust the cue and make it narrow or wide, and sort of feel out what seems to hit a sweet spot for you.
0: So that's, mm-hmm. Does that feel about right to you? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. So yeah, that, that I mean that's kind of the next range that I would pay attention to with the vocal, um, and then after that. I tend to ask myself, like, does the vocal have enough top end presence to to sound uh, like to, to cut through the mix? Or does it sound like there's a blanket over it? Kind of like that one example you mentioned of rolling off the top end, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, if it sounds buried, then typically you're going to want to boost between like five to eight K to make the vo- the vocal sit on top. Um, and then also, if you need a little bit more intimacy in the voice and you want to hear some more of that, like, sexy, whispery kind of tone to the voice. Um, using high shelves around 12K and up, that will tend to give you a little bit more of that crispy air and uh, make the vocal feel like it's sitting much more forward in the mix. Now, if you bury it with a ton of reverb and stuff like that, you're going to lose all that intimacy as well, right? right? It's right. not going to sound like it's very forward, but but um, yeah, definitely frequency-wise, that's where you're going to find that kind of stuff.
1: Well, so it's interesting. Another thing to think about just conceptually, um, as far as the way the brain interprets sound, um, when you talk about burying it in reverb, you, you know, A question you might ask is like, well, but if the vocal's up loud and it's got the highs in it and then you put add reverb, how come it makes it, how come it doesn't still sound forward? I mean, if somebody was standing in a room that's echoey and reverberant to you and they walked further away from you, it would be more in reverb. And that's Mm -hmm. why the human brain hears that as sounding far away and not forward.
0: Yeah. As you roll off top end in your mix, things are going to sound further away. Yeah.
1: And that stuff's always fascinating to me, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and I, and I do that all the time with like just adding reverb plugins too. If I, if I'm going to have my drum sounds and I've got a really bright reverb, well, the drums are going to sound much closer. Right. Whereas if I want to create this, this idea of a much larger space, I'll roll off some of that top end on the reverb so that it sounds further back. Yeah. Or even uh, like I'm mixing a
1: jazz record, even if there are times where I'm like, I love what the drums are doing, but this moment is about the piano. It's not about the drums. Um, rolling off some of the top and actually filtering out the highs in the overhead, which in a way seems counterintuitive. You're like, what? Well, I thought we we're trying to have nice bright symbols, you know, but it all of a sudden made the track come together because it allows your brain to f- hear the highs from another instrument that you're like, Oh, that is the one that's forward. That's supposed to be there. So that sounds mm-hmm. right to me. Yeah. Cool, man. What else cool. should we talk about?
0: <laughs> what, uh, what else we got? Um, well,
1: you know, you had another great video where you talked about getting low-end to sit right on small speakers, and I thought that would be a hip one to get into. Certainly, uh, For sure. Certainly nobody listening's ever struggled with low-end in a mix.
0: Nah, low-end's <laughs> the easiest
1: thing to do, right? <laughs> yeah, so talk about some tips there.
0: For sure. Um, I think that one mistake a lot of people make when it comes to low-end is that they expect that in order to get your instruments like a kick and a bass to be heard... You have to focus on the low end, like like the 80 to uh, to you know 150, 200 hertz range or, or below that, and just crank all of that, and all of a sudden, you're going to hear their bass. but the problem with that is that it it just eventually starts to sound like mud and it destroys everything else and the clarity yeah. of everything else. so often I find that a really handy tool to use is like just dis- is distortion um, oh yeah and to, to, in- to like infuse a little bit of harmonic content into your mix so that you know it will jump through on smaller speakers but you're not just slamming the low end and and making that super loud because especially if you're if you're if you just crank the low end and then all of a sudden you put your mix on a set of speakers that has a subwoofer with it it's just going to it's going to be so boomy and you're not going to hear the top end clear at all it's just going to be destroyed by the subwoofer volume yeah um, it's like
1: you'll hear more bass in the mix but you won't necessarily hear more bass drum or bass guitar you'll just hear a big Mush of yeah flowing. it's just gonna be
0: like you know like it's just like there's there's nothing that was a really awful example of low end but <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah it just it just sounds like a wash of noise low end noise um so i tend to go towards things like distortion um especially on bass like i find that when i listen to my mixes my if you were to solo the bass in my tracks it would be super distorted and you'd be like what like This is what the bass sounds like, but in the context of the mix, you don't hear it. It just sounds like a bass, you know, but I tend to go pretty hard with distortion on bass tracks and and I'll often run it in parallel with like a cleaner DI track Mm -hmm. so that I still have that clean focused bass. But then there's that super fuzzy one that's just tucked in there that adds a little bit of extra grit. So so that that helps it cut through.
1: That's such a great tip. And I remember... Going through that process, sometimes you do have to just make all these mistakes to really learn them and understand them, and that's okay because you understand it better because you made the mistake. But like, I, first thing I did was crank up the low end on stuff, thinking that that would make it sound better, and then my mix would sound like shit. And then I was like, damn, what's why? Why does this not sound good? And then it's uh, what's what's sort of a mind bender to me was understanding that more bass in a mix was. Uh, more often than not was less bass in my mix. Like mm-hmm. having, it doesn't, um, how can I describe it? It's almost like by carefully, carefully leaving the space for the just right amount of low frequencies, everything from 100 hertz and below, um, it allows you, if you have it dialed in right, it allows you to crank it up more. And then all of a sudden you have this really deep low end, you know, um, and, and when you just crank up the bass on all your, your tracks, you're filling up that space and it doesn't allow you to turn it up, you know? And so it's just, it sounds muddy. Uh, but what was I going to say? So, so the distortion is such a great trick for getting things to read. And also we live in this world of, of digital workstations, you know, where everything's so super, super clean. Um, and, and a lot of the music we might be excited about maybe is, you know, older than that. Um, you know, older, rock was mixed on consoles with tape. And there was a lot of harmonics added during the process of printing it to tape during the process yeah. of going through, you know, transformers and mic preamps and on consoles and, and, um, mixing it. And so that would naturally have a tendency to sort of help you read the instrument a little more clearly.
0: Yeah. Uh, that That's the reason why people say like, Oh, analog sounds so much better than digital. It's because the the design of those tools, like there's all these components inside that add extra harmonics in there. Yeah. So if you can recreate that in the digital world, then you'll get a very similar result.
1: But it does mean that sometimes we have to work a little harder. We have to be conscious of that of and, and actually recreate that in the digital world. But something that I recently just learned about is... Um, you know, a plugin that comes with Pro Tools is Sansamp, which is super cool, super useful. That's like
0: my favorite plugin. It's a great I distortion every plugin.
1: But what I didn't really realize is I had struggled a little bit at times using it in parallel with other tracks, and I've come to learn that it actually does have some phasing problems, and it can actually, um, you can actually get some cancellations in your low ends and stuff when you try and put it on a parallel bass track, for example. So something mm-hmm. to be aware of. Uh, it may be better as the one plugin that you're adding to a track rather than parallel, or you may want to explore what some other, um, you know, some other distortion modules are are out Mm -hmm. there too.
0: And I find that when I use the SansAmp plugin, I tend to, to, because I'm running it in combination with like a a clean DI track most of the time, the SansAmp track doesn't have all of that low end in there. Mm -hmm. I I tend to make it sound a little bit thinner and it, it is just there to, tuck underneath the other track and, and give it that extra crispiness, I guess. Yeah,
1: and you're going, you can, what I love about it, I've got an outboard one here too, but even with the plug-in is you can really dial in just that little bit of mid-range and upper frequency distortion that lets you read the bass, but that you were missing yeah. on the track.
0: Yeah, same here. I, I have the, uh, right in front of me, I've got the SansAmp RPM. I use that as my tracking DI for bass I've
1: got that right over there too it doesn't get nice. used as much as I wish it did but then when I listen to a track where I did use it I'm like wait this sounds great
0: yeah I, I use it every time I track bass because it's it's a great DI and then you get the the blend as well of that distorted saturated sound
1: and I know you can rock stars if you're not watching video so you can't see it but I also have the original rack unit which is um before the midi controllable digital one um, there are a lot of different SANS apps out there. And if you're into oh, yeah. collecting all the outboard gear, it is pretty fun to collect them. I've got the guitar pedal too.
0: I also have that to my left there you go. the bass driver. There you go. <laughs> um, and they work great in combination with each other too. So
1: something else that you pointed out about it was you said, if you solo the bass, you're going to hear there's way more distortion in there than you expected. And the um, inverse of that statement is saying that when the distorted bass is blended in with the rest of the rock band and the tracks, you don't hear distortion on the bass. You just hear that now you can hear the bass in the mix. And so a point that we might add to that is reminding people that, yeah, well, when you break down for the verse or do the breakdown section, just like an effect, like a delay or a reverb or something that's turned up loud during the loud section, you may need to back that off or you may need to actually mute the distorted bass during the sort of the open section, because you will hear it, and it might sound mm-hmm. too distorted, and that's that's another learning experience that we all have to go through. Where it's like, you tr- you spend a lot of energy trying to kind of create this static mix where everything just rocks and it's just awesome all the time, but in the end, static is not going to work for everything. You get you get yeah. as close as you can, and you get to a point where it's like, okay, now I have to manipulate i have to do automation on certain tracks or i have to simply mute things and turn them on and off during the mix for this to
0: really work yeah that's a really good point like i yeah if anytime that you get like that that second verse where everything just rings out and it becomes like a bass and drum thing with vocal like that that's a very common thing i find with a lot of punk arrangements at least you know that's when like you just have to dial back a little bit on that distortion otherwise it's going to just Insane, right, right. So, and you could yeah. actually,
1: you could automate dialing it back. You could just bring the level back of the distortion. You could, mm-hmm. hell, just put up a set, a different distortion track, mute one and unmute the other with like a, a slightly less gained up tone or something if you want.
0: For sure. And, and it's funny too because I like bass is such a hard thing to get, and especially when you have like distorted guitars, right? Um, so I actually tend to track bass after guitars. Like mm. I, I used to do, I used to do drums and bass and guitar then vocals, and now. I always do guitar second because then I get the distortion, the full fullness of the body of the guitars, and then I fit the bass around all of that. Yeah, that's a good. And like point. find find the saturation that fits with the guitar sound.
1: And you know, another funny thing about bass is especially for really tight and and accurate rock music, stuff that really needs to punch and not be sloppy. Boy, it's it's such a different experience to cut the bass in the control room where you can hear it over the speakers and you can get all that loudness and low end turned up and really like be precise with it than in headphones. Yeah. For sure. Um I just I th- I find that there's a lot more room to just kind of uh get the wrong distortions and the wrong tones in headphones and not notice it and you know. Oh
0: yeah, so many headphones are so mid focused too that like you know, it it throws off your whole perception of the distortion.
1: Yeah, I was just realizing that this weekend as I was experimenting with some new microphones and listening and trying to see what I thought. And then I came in and listened to the recording. And I was like, ah, that stuff I was hearing in the headphones, I'm not really, it's not coming out of the speakers the same. Hmm. So maybe I'm going to have to upgrade my headphone boxes. I don't know. But cool. All right, well, let's talk about some of your productions here just a little bit. Um, For sure. There was one of the bands that you had on there, Hang Time. Was this great speed rock band? I don't know what you, you called it. Um, what you, uh, oh, I forgot the term you just used. You had an expression for the the style of music. It's like pop punk. Pop or? punk. There you go. Pop yeah. punk. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm learning. I'm forever a student, man. Um, <laughs> and I, one of the things I noticed about the one of the guitar players in the video is that he did an interesting thing where, like, the intro of the song was all downstrokes on his guitar, and then when the verse started. He was doing down-upstrokes on the guitar. And that's one of those details in doing rock music that you have to learn about as you're doing it. And I wonder if you wanted to talk about the importance of, you know, the, the way that guitars are being played and when it's appropriate, when it's not. Does it matter? Does it not
0: matter? For sure. I, I think that that's, like, one of the biggest problems that I have with most of the bands that come through the studio. If, if I don't have a chance to do pre-production with them, it almost inevitably ends up being that the two guitar players in the band will play different strumming patterns from each other. And it could be that somebody's doing down up and someone's just doing all downstrokes. Um, But I think it's super important to really focus on the strumming pattern and the strumming direction as well. Um, You know, when you're doing all downstrokes, you're going to get a little bit more bite, a little bit more attack, and you're going to hear that pick a little bit more um, versus when you're doing down up. Like it, it, it in theory should not sound very different, right, but right. It, it does sound different. Um, and so you know, trying to get bands to lock in there is huge. Um and it's so true what it, you said
1: about the guitars just kind of playing different stuff. And it's remarkable how the two guitar players might they might pick up on stuff by playing together and do these cool things. And then there's also these things that they just completely don't even notice about the other instruments. Oh, for sure.
0: Yeah. There's always like one guy who's pushing a note a little faster than the other. Oh boy. That oh of day, yeah, right? there sure
1: is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's like... The, it's almost easier just to have like one guy play all of the guitar tracks just so that it's like super locked down. And
1: what a curse of the engineer and producer. Like you, you develop such an acute sense of timing on what comes out of the speakers. And when a musician comes in and they just don't pick up on any of that and they're just way on top of the beat, it's just like, just poke me yeah. in the eye with a fork.
0: Well, I feel like, especially as myself being a drummer, like one of the earliest lessons that I had to learn was like lock in with the bass. And once I realized, okay, like I got to have a similar rhythm and like accent those same notes. Like once I started realizing that, it was like, okay, well, why doesn't everyone do that then? You know, like everyone should should do it to sound tighter. Yeah. Um. And yeah, when when you have that one guy who pushes the note earlier than the rest, it, it just makes everything fall apart. So, Well, you know. W- I, this
1: weekend I, when I went with my daughter to go get our fried chicken at our favorite fried chicken place. They play a lot of great old rock music and they're playing. Hattie B's? Uh, no, not Hattie B's. Uh, we go to McDougal's. Oh, okay. Hattie B's is new. It's new. It's the new kid on the block. Is it? Okay. Oh, yeah.
0: I was in Nashville in the summer and we went to Hattie yeah, B's and it was
1: great. It, it's the one that you'll read about in the magazine insert on the flight down to Nashville for sure. But yeah. it is the new kid on the block. But, um, but they, <laughs> so they are playing Ramones and I was like pointing out to, her, I was like, listen, kiddo this is for. if you notice the guitars the pace they're all playing the same thing together the whole time you know but um but it's also interesting and reminds me that while you need to understand that and there's a lot of power in everybody being unified sometimes the sound of a band is that the one player is pushing a little bit the other player is hanging back and it's like it all adds up into just the right thing
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's definitely true for sure yeah i think that like my my approach to it is i always watch whenever i get into pre-production the first thing i do is just watch the guitar players hands as much as i can and just see what they're doing and just i often the problem the problem i think happens a lot of the time is that people are playing in these loud rooms they've got their amps cranked and like everyone's just into it in the moment and they're focusing so much on what they're playing and you can't when you're when you're just in a big reverberant rehearsal space, like you can't hear those small details. Yeah. So it often helps to just strip things down and like play it acoustically and play it at like half speed almost so that like you're forced to really think about every movement you're making and, uh, and just watch each other, listen to see like what each person's playing and that'll make you way tighter.
1: Yeah. So I've had guests on here talk about, um, pre-production in the control room where you've got the band sitting around and everybody's air strumming on guitars, or you can hear the vocalist sing just naturally in the room. Everything's quiet. The drummer can just kind of like with pencils hit their leg or sticks and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it really does. It's like there's such clarity, and all of a sudden you hear that people are doing different things or they're doing stuff together, and that
0: can really help. For sure. And I can't remember who it was. I want to say it was Bob Rock who said that if a song can sound heavy as an acoustic song... It's gonna sound monstrous when you add the amps. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I, I love that. It's it's I think it's so true.
1: Well, and you know, being in the rehearsal space and turning things up loud, um, I know as a guitar player, sometimes I just hit a chord and I'm like, God, that sounds so good coming out of the amp, you know. I'm having yeah. so much fun just listening back, I'm not paying attention to just being precise with what I'm playing. Um, so you know, there's a lot of reasons why those things happen. And it's so important to get all the strums right. I even wrote that down, the importance of strum, you know? Mm-hmm. But like, um, I don't know how it is in the kind of pop punk stuff, but I know in, in songwritery world and rock stuff, there's a, there's a great deal of cues for the guitar strums that come from the lyric and the vocal. Absolutely. And then same thing with the kick drum pattern on the, on the, ba- on the drums a lot of cues Mm -hmm. come from the vocal again. It's like accenting based on the lyric. That's
0: a whole art in itself, being able to understand those cues. I I have a a good friend of mine, an old roommate. He is probably one of the best piano players I know. And uh, there'd be times when I'd come home some nights and just be like, hey man, what are you up to? And he'd be like, oh, I have to learn 150 songs tonight. (laughs) And like, and that wasn't an exaggeration like he would do it and i'd be like how like you don't even have that much time to to like listen, listen to, to the song songs,
1: 150 songs yeah.
0: yeah right and and he would just listen to it, like half a verse half a chorus and he knew the song in and out based on like vocal vocal things and uh and currently he's playing on tour with uh Shawn Mendes and and i remember talking to him about that and i was like how would that get come about and he's like oh i got a phone call being like hey do you want to play with Shawn Mendes and he's like hell yeah of course Like, cool, get on a plane in four hours and we'll see you in Europe and you're, you're going to show up like hours before the gig and you're just going to hit up, hit the stage and go. Yeah. And like, and he's like, so I learned the songs on the plane, (laughs) you know, like, you know, there's, there's so many things that you just have to pay attention to in the, in the context of the arrangement that will lead you to play the right rhythms and everything.
1: What are some of the things that come to mind for you as a producer and an engineer and a mixer, as far as this, where it's important to be able to speed learn what you're working on? I guess you talked about like, you know, the mixing process and um, not getting, not not tweaking everything until you end up with like a perfect beige mix.
0: I think, so one thing that I used to do with my bass player, and it kind of just started as like a, as almost like a joke for us, but it really helped us hone in on each other's rhythms and patterns, was we used to like mouth each other's parts to each other. That's so important. So like... So like he'd, you know, he'd be going like boom, 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 boom or whatever. And and I would sing that to him as I was playing drums and like to show that I knew it and he would see if he can match the drum pattern. And that made us lock in so much better. Uh, and it was kind of like just a fun thing. Like, oh, like I know your part so well. and like, do you know mine? Like, yeah, but- no, it's a it's great insight. I mean, I
1: actually try and get people to to do that all the time here. Like a drummer, I'm like, how do I explain what the drum part is? I go like, you know eat more bananas or something like whatever it is, you know, and it's like, and that's the part and that kind yeah. of stuff helps. But, but when people aren't used to that, sometimes they look at you like you're crazy, but I like what you just described. And, and it's almost like there's a, there's a mutual musical respect to, to saying like, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm going to demonstrate to you that I'm listening to what you're doing enough to know what your thing is. Yeah. It's pretty it, cool. It's funny.
0: It's funny that you said the eat more bananas thing. Cause, um, that band hang time that you had asked me about, their drummer would do that all the time. Like anytime there was any sort of discrepancy of, you know, what's the rhythm. He, he had this like amazing talent of being able to put together a phrase that would work perfectly with the rhythm. (laughs) And he'd be like, ah, down with the belly flop down with the belly flop or whatever, you know? And it's like, and it's like, what? It's much better (laughs) than eat more bananas. Yeah. Well, whatever. I mean, whatever the rhythm is, I guess. Right. But um, yeah, he, he always was able to like sing these weird phrases that match the rhythm perfectly and all it took was like one or two listens to that line and everyone knew what to play. I'm writing that down, down with the belly flop. Um, I remember (laughs) some of the
1: first ones I learned about, because they would joke about them in sessions here. um, It was like Pat Boon Debbie Boon. That was like one of the drum fills. And then there's Bucket of Beans, Bucket of Beans. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's like 10,000 others, but those are the ones that stuck out. Yeah. Um, Very cool, man. (laughs) Well, so yeah, so importance of... Paying close attention to what's going on with the 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 strokes of the guitars, the strumming, um, the kick and the bass going together, uh, those are really interesting ones. You know, it's a, that's the first thing to learn is like bass drum, the bass drum and the bass guitar. A first thing to learn is play the same thing together. A second thing to learn is don't just play the same thing together. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it's more interest, more complex than that, more interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that I, I repeatedly run into a struggle, too, is the push beat versus the downbeat in choruses and stuff. Because you might have a vocal that pushes or the guitars push, but does the bass and the kick drum push in the drums? Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about, like, the push beat versus the straight beat? And do we need to explain what that is?
0: Yeah. Um- yeah I guess uh I mean, in terms of the strumming pattern for a push beat, it's like you get that one person who's just jumping to that note like a half second early right and like this a, this
1: isn't playing on top rock stars. this is like jung, 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 jung. yeah those are push beats right there,
0: yeah, and especially in punk rock stuff like there's so much of that um but uh yeah, I mean, I don't have a preference it, it really like what i what I say to every band that comes through the door is like look, like if we if we find somewhere where we have a discrepancy in terms of the, the strumming pattern, or if I have an idea or a suggestion for the song, like, let's try it out. Let's see what works. And, you know, if one of us is, if it's a bad idea, it's a bad idea, you know, let, but let's try it and see what feels the best. And we can work through all of the different variations of it to see what feels best. And that's just what you go with.
1: Yeah. I, There's no real
0: right or wrong.
1: Hopefully, you know, the beauty of that too is, um, we stress out about making the decision, but when you do what you just described, you, you let the music make the decision for you, hopefully. Like you try stuff in the studio, and hopefully the one that just sounds better is obvious. And then and then the mm-hmm. beauty of it too is it's like if it's not obvious, then who cares? Keep moving. Yeah. Like you just discovered that it didn't matter. I, so I, I, um, a, a friend of mine, a girl, was she was actually reading to me I'm going to get all religious here for a sec, but she was reading to me a quote from Ecclesiastes. And it was apparently it was King Solomon who, who had this quote that said, a tree falls north or a tree falls south. It doesn't matter because it's still in the same place. And she's like, <laughs> what does that mean? I was like, oh man, that's super deep. <laughs> but, but it's kind of like what you just described. It's kind of like, let's try this thing in the studio. Let's try that thing in the studio. If you discover that one doesn't sound better than the other, that's okay. Like move mm-hmm. on quickly from it because it, it just let you know that you don't have to worry about the push beat or the not push beat, but sometimes you do.
0: Yeah. And some Well, sometimes like if one guy is not doing it, but everyone else is, then you know, that that's an issue. Yeah. Like let's lock in. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But if like half of the band's do one thing, half the band's doing another, it's like, okay, well, let's try them out and see what sounds best. Well, I had
1: uh, just recorded a bunch of my own songs in, in jan- January. And one of the things that I learned was on some of the songs, those guys, they couldn't see my hand strumming the guitar through the glass because my glass is a little taller than the guitar. <laughs> Learning lesson number one for building my studio, <laughs> make the glass <laughs> low enough so that you can see through it and see somebody's hand strumming a guitar. <laughs> um, Somebody's going to be super glad I just said that on the podcast.
0: Oh, it's, S- it's huge. Somebody who's but,
1: listening right now is about to build a studio's like, "Oh my god, thank thank god you just said that before I, you know, built the window in my control room." Oh yeah. But uh, but you know, in some of those instances, the songs were simple enough that they could just kind of hear what the the beats were and w- what the strum pattern is, but on some of them, it's too masked by my crazy cray cray distortion on the guitar, you know. And <laughs> if they could have seen my hands, then we would have locked in on the certain details. So for sure. All right. That's enough talking about hand strums, important stuff. (laughs) Um, Let's see here. Let's see here. Let's see here. Okay. Another guitar question. We've got a rock band. They're a trio. There's one guitar player in the band. What do we do? Where does the guitar go? How do we mix this?
0: Um, How do we produce it? So, yeah, I I guess it really comes down to, uh, it depends on the context of the song and the arrangement, I think. Um, if it's like a stripped-down song, then you know you can sometimes get away with a single guitar. Uh, like if, for example, like I one of the tracks I just recently worked on, there was this like quieter rock song where it was just the singer starting off half of the song. The first half of the song was just like one guitar and vocals, and that was it. And so I chose to just like make it the singer on stage. Like I was envisioning the pro the like if I was seeing this band live, what would they be doing? And just the singer singing on stage with his guitar and we just kept it panned up the center. And then when the rest of the band came in, then to add size, I panned out everything and made, made the doubles and all that stuff. Generally my approach to it is if it's like a full band thing, everyone's kind of blasting their guitars and drums and everything, then I'll double up the guitar parts and pan them left and right. Usually I'll take one lead track and and pan that center or uh, depending on what else is going on. If there's like some sort of delay thing on the guitar, I might pan the lead a little outside of the delay. Um, but that's kind of it. Like I, I usually just try to keep it simple. I don't quad track guitars or I know some people it'll go like eight eight layers. And I've tried that and it just starts to sound muddy afterwards. So I, I just like to keep things simple. Punk rock simple. Yeah, <laughs> like- yeah.
1: Well, one of the reminders though is too, is when we do double a guitar, it has a natural you know, tendency to chorus it out a little bit. It actually mm-hmm. can push the guitar back a little bit as well, yeah. right?
0: And and again, that's when you're doubling guitars, that's where it's also very important to just even know your own strumming pattern. Right, which like, was surprising it, it's, how little
1: we know our own part.
0: Yeah, everyone just kind of feels it out. And then afterwards, they're like, oh, did I push that note? Like, you know, know your part.
1: Yeah, and another thing is um, I've discovered this... Um, funny enough, in tuning vocals, so like if I do a vocal and then a double, and I take it over to Melodyne to go tune it, I might hear a vocal, a single vocal in Melodyne, and think, "Oh, that sounds just fine." But then when I add the double and I and I make sure the double is following all the same notes as the the lead, all of a sudden the thing that wasn't right at all stands out. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it's really kind of the same thing with the doubled guitars. It's like the one guitar just feeling it out may may seem to kind of work or you didn't notice it so much. But like you said, when you double it, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that's, are
0: we going to do a push beat there? Or are we not going to do a push beat? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for your vocal comment, um, I almost always will like, I, I almost always double vocals in with just to have in the mix. Um, and then choruses, I usually bring that in just to fill it out and make it a little wider. Right. But I almost always immediately vocal line everything as well. Right. Um. I, I just love that plugin. Like once I got that, it was like on everything I did. All right. So I
1: don't have it right now. I've used it in the past, but uh, tell the rock stars what vocal vocal line is. It's not vocal line. It's vocal line. Vo- right. Vocal line. Vocal line. Yeah. Tell, yeah. tell us about. So
0: basi- it. Yeah. So basically, what it does is you can set the input source, which everything else will sync to. So when it comes to a vocal, for example, um, you know, you would take your your lead vocal line and then import that into the plugin and then you would use that as your guide track and then on your dub track you would import the double part and with the press of a button it will immediately kind of sync up all of the rhythms and the words together so that they perfectly align um now that only really works as long as the rhythm is close right if it's like totally off then you know it's it's going to freak out a bit But it's great for when you have someone holding a note at the end of a part. So, you know, if they hold it for like, uh, versus, uh, you know, one's a lot shorter than the other. So you got to figure out which one you want to keep and then the other one will sync to it. Yeah.
1: It's always funny how, uh, how much of a pain in the butt that is. And then they sing it and they're like, oh, you nailed it, but it was a little bit short. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You make that one a little longer. And it's hard to judge exactly how long is the right amount of long to... Mm-hmm. on the end of a note. Um well very cool. All right, um let us talk about some of our usual jam questions here and kind of uh jump in and we'll kind of close out the podcast. Um when you started out in recording, what do you feel like was holding you back?
0: I would say it was myself more than anything. Um a couple of things. I think there was like a lot of indecisiveness of what I wanted to do. Um because I was bouncing around. I was taking every opportunity that came my way. So it was like I was in the studio, then I'd be doing post-production, then I'd be on the road. And, and like, I couldn't really focus on running all three of those things at once. It was, I, you know, whatever was in the moment. So, I mean, that was, it was a good thing and a bad thing. Like it was bad in the sense that it took me longer to get going with the studio, which ultimately I decided was the thing I wanted to do. But it was good in the sense that I learned a lot from watching other people and took so many skills from different areas that I now apply to my studio. Um, So I would definitely say there was like, that was part of it. And the other part was just a lack of, uh, confidence in my ability to like, like reach out to bands and, and network. Um, you know, I was afraid to talk to bands after shows unless I was friends with them. But even then I wasn't like, I was, I was never the guy to be like, Hey, like I run a studio. We should work together. It was like, I kind of had this idea that if like I built a website with some examples of stuff, that my friends would go on Facebook or wherever and find my website link and then they'd click on it and then they'd listen to my portfolio and be like, Hey, we should work together. But that's just like expecting way too much. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Considering how, uh, many times in the day we do that for all our friends, it probably helps us understand why they might not be doing it for us.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so now I definitely try to keep on top of my communications with people and, uh, I know you and I, when we first started emailing back and forth, we were talking about CRMs and the importance of that. Oh, that's Um, right. We
1: didn't get to talk about that. Oh, we can get into that. Let's. uh...
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, like a CRM. So, for people who are listening that don't know what we're talking about, uh, we're talking about customer relationship management software. Yeah. Um, And basically, the gist of it 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 is, I thought
1: it stood for crappy rock rock mix. That's what I was talking about. (laughs) You could be right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You could be right there. That's that's a in isn't it? Yeah, right. I'm working on it. I've been working on it for twenty years. <laughs> it's it's like the suck knob, but like you put it in your plugins. Oh man,
1: and that's so old school too. That is that's the Far Side reference that goes back yeah. to
0: like the eighties. <laughs> Does it? I think I think you're I think something like that.
1: All right, sorry, rock stars. Yeah. We anyway, we digress. But so, um,
0: anyway, yeah, so customer relationship management software. I think it's relationship management. software. Yeah, I think you're right. Um. Basically, it allows you to keep track of all of your projects and communications in one centralized piece of software. So what I found was happening years ago was that I would talk to a band and they would say, you know, we're, we're planning on recording a record at the end of the year, that kind of thing. And mentally, I'd be like, cool, I'm going to remember to talk to that band like six months down the road from now or whatever. And inevitably, like the week after or maybe even like the next day, I would completely forget that I had that conversation. And at the end of one year, like I remember, I had a couple of bigger projects that I thought I had it in the bag. Like I was like, "Yeah, I got these projects; it's going to be great." And then they had told me, "Like, yeah, contact us. Uh, contact us in six months." And I totally forgot. And I contacted them in nine months, and they're like, "Oh, sorry, we went with." Yeah, we just Beck finished producer. the record. Yeah, we just finished the record, and and so I kind of realized, like, shit, like I need to remember to keep on top of this, and like have some sort of way to remember. That like, I had this conversation with a band, what we talked about, and remember to, to reach out to them at the right time. So I use a program called Sales Flare, which I think is great. I think you use that too, Yeah, right? that's the one that I've got too, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so basically, anytime I talk to a band at a show, I immediately put it in my CRM and say, like, contact the band the week after. So like, if I, talk, if, I, if I saw a band that I was really impressed by, I almost always talk to them after the show and, you know, say good show or whatever and try to just beer with them and be friendly or whatever. And then I'll follow up like a week later and just be like, hey, like, I'm the guy that you met after the show and I thought you guys sounded great, whatever. And then I can go deeper into a conversation about like, what are your plans for the band? What are you guys up to? And, you know, if they say we're we're, we're writing songs right now, well, then I know, depending on where they're at with that, to contact them in a few months or right. in a, it, it, whenever. Um, and I just find that that allows me to keep on top of my conversations and really just like every day my phone goes off and it says like contact so-and-so about whatever i left my reminder to be right and and that just that that has been a lifesaver like there's been so many bands that i would for i would have forgot to reach out to
1: let's let's break that down a little bit more because i know from my own experience of getting a crm um like you get it initially you get it you're like oh i know this is a useful tool this is going to help and then you look at it and you're like oh my god my brain's exploding what is this thing uh, talk a little bit about the actual detailed process, you know, without getting too specific since, since, uh, you know, if somebody doesn't have the same one, but, but generally, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you open the app on your phone. Now you're looking at the sales flare app and you, you're talking to the band. Do you, are you entering their contact info into that? Or do you put the contact as soon as info I know, into the phone or what?
0: Yeah. As soon as I know who the main contact is for that band, often it's a singer I find. Right. Um, as soon as I have their contact info, I immediately create what they would call like an account in the CRM. Right. And I put all the information that I know about that band, like who plays what, um, you know, who their contact is, like what their Facebook page is, what their band camp page is, that kind of stuff. So that like, I can quickly pull up their account at any point and click on their links and have their music right in front of me. I know who to contact and, and which member of the band to reach out to. And sometimes people will add me on Facebook just as like individual members, so. It's good to know who I've talked to outside of the band account,
1: right? And the account is the equals the band, and then the contacts yeah, are the sorry, individuals yeah, yeah. within that,
0: right? You're right. Sorry about that. No, it's all right. Um, this is just the
1: stuff that like perplexes my brain when I first see it until I begin to think about it the right way. It's like it's like figuring out what folder goes inside of what folder on your Mac. Once you understand that, you're like, oh, that's so easy. Why didn't they just say that at first? <laughs> yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. So so once you've created like the the band account and then you've got all of the individual contacts for each member of the band, um, you can do uh, like a reminder. And I'm pretty sure every CRM allows you to do this. Right. So I'll, I'll put a reminder that says like follow up in six months about new music, or, you know, this band has two songs that they're working on. Ask them if they need help with mixing or mastering.
1: And it's, and it's, it's just like, uh, I was going to say, I was going to interject. It's like reminders in your phone, except that, um, cause you might be thinking like, well, why don't I just do a reminder in my phone? But, it means that when you open up this app, it's going to show you this like cr- uh, breadcrumb trail of your whole conversation mm-hmm. and the fact that you made that reminder back when and et cetera, et cetera. So Sorry, keep going. Yeah, and
0: it'll show you like any emails that you've had with that person in the past. So you can quickly recap everything you've talked about to that point and just have everything right in front of you. Yeah. And it, I, I just think it's huge and it's it's allowed me to keep on top of a lot of projects that I would have forgot about.
1: Yeah. And you can take notes and I think you can even, it'll even make a note of when you talked on the phone too. Mm -hmm. I
0: I don't think I have it synced to my phone, but, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of stuff you could do. Some of them even let you have like templated emails within the software. So, you know, you can be like, Hey, first name, and it'll automatically insert the first name of the singer or whatever into it. Um, So like, yeah, like I, I, I use templated emails in Google as well. For a lot of things, I'm, I'm typing the same emails yeah. every day. Yeah, you know, and I'm
1: using another tool now called Text Expander, which um, lets you do templated. You know, if it's not like a full email, but it's like a sentence or a paragraph or like a link. You know how much of a pain in the ass it is to type in recordingstudiorockstars.com/slash <laughs> something or other in your yeah. iPhone when you when you need your reading glasses like I do now. So like that will allow me to put in you know, X-R-S-R, R, and it just goes bing and, like, puts in all this information. So that stuff can be really helpful, these tools. I
0: love programs like that. Like, I, I recently got uh, Keyboard Maestro. Yeah. And and I use that for so much stuff in Pro Tools. Like, hit one button, and it does, like, 10 buttons worth of key commands. It's the best. So the, the stuff like that is
1: really cool. It's really interesting. Rockstars, don't be discouraged by it. You, you do have to advance to the point of saying, like, Okay, this is actually a task I'm repeating every day, and I know that I want to make it faster. So I'm going to put in the time and effort to like create a keyboard maestro, quick mm-hmm. key that will that will let me do it quickly. So um, don't stress about it. You'll 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 create your own custom stuff as you get to it and as it's useful to you. Um, Batch Commander from Slate is like a version of that that just lives in in you know as an open app underneath Pro Tools. But then the the other thing I just wanted to close out with, with the CRM thing is just remember these were designed for stuff that feels like, you know, um, pencil, you know, pencil <laughs> nose or pencil neck, or I don't know what, what expression, you know, corporate world where you're like, this is, this doesn't make sense. We're making rock records. Yeah. So you have to just push through that. You have to be like, okay, I know it's called an account, but it's really a band. And I know that, um, you know, an automated email template. How am I going to send that to a band? Yeah. No, but you have to rewrite, you have to make it into your own language so that it makes sense for what you're using. using I, I
0: think that so many studios don't think of their studio as like a business, you know, and, and there's, I, I used to work for a, uh, a music manufacturing company. Like we did CD manufacturing and stuff like that. And, and I was always the guy that was like, post-it note guy. Like I, I would just leave post-it notes everywhere about like contact this person or here's this detail about something. And I remember my, my manager being like, what are you doing? Like, what if I, t- what if I take one of these, what are you going to do? You know? And, uh, and it just really like made me realize, okay, I need to like keep much better track of my notes, keep them all centralized, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and that's really where, like, I didn't even understand the idea of a CRM. Like, I, you know, that, but working for that company, I realized like, oh, like you can make a database of something and, you know, have all your contacts in there. And think of, think of your studio as a business. Like that's, if you're trying to make a living off of it, you need to, keep on top of conversations with people and follow up yeah. and put yourself out there as well. Yeah.
1: If you're only trying to make one record, then you don't need a contact resource management. Absolutely But not. if you're trying yeah. to uh, grow your studio as a business and do a lot of work, then it, by definition, it typically means you need to scale it beyond what you can just do, you know, off the top of your head all the time, which is yeah. why these tools are so
0: useful. I don't even remember what I had for dinner last night. <laughs> exactly. So like, how can I, how can I expect to remember someone's email address? Uh, you
1: know, my first discovery of that, uh, for myself was like working with a band in the studio and i be like, and I, I won't remember what we just worked on for 12 hours yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's, I think it's like a survival mechanism too. I don't think you could edit the same song and work on it for 12 hours if you really, really remembered all that because you'd go crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's just my my self defense. All right. Well, so uh, we're we're going uh, long on time here. Let's, let's go to our closing question here and um, talk about, uh, uh, well, it's a hypothetical question, but I want to take you in the Wayback Studio Machine so that you could go back and find young Mike, um, who's playing drums and trying to, you know, why won't the band remember what we just rehearsed yesterday? And you're going to go back and give yourself one bit of advice, um, which maybe is kind of close to what you just talked about when you were talking about what was holding you back. But what, if you could go back and give yourself one bit of advice, say, here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio one day. What do you think you'd go back and tell yourself if you could?
0: I would definitely, it definitely ties to what we were just talking about, like get better at networking don't be afraid to put yourself out there and do the uncomfortable, you know, uh, like put yourself out there and, and and be willing to get rejected a couple of times. It's just going to make you stronger and put yourself out there as much as possible. Like I, I, I can say that when I played in bands, like I played with so many bands that I loved and became great friends with those people. But I never followed up in terms of telling them, you know, I, I have a studio or I'm like, I'll record your band for a compressor or a microphone or something like that. I never tried that, you know. It was only like the couple people that had been to my house and saw that I had the gear that I worked with, you know. Um, so if you're willing to put yourself out there and let people know what you're trying to do and you follow up on conversations and all that, you're, you're going to go much further.
1: Yeah, I know phones don't ring that much anymore, but I guess the, the saying would be like, you know, just stop waiting for the phone to ring and make the phone ring
0: or pick of up course, the phone yeah. and
1: dial, you know yeah <laughs> smile in and in dial in as my friend Glenn says <laughs> um, so great uh, let's thank you again for being on recording studio Rockstars with us Mike's totally awesome hanging with you man thanks for having you, me. you shared some great tips on this and, and it was really fun to talk to you about all this stuff let the Rockstars know how they can find you online learn more about you um, you've got a wonderful podcast out there and I know you have some great great free resources out there that they should be checking out too
0: For sure. So, uh, first place, if you want to check out some of my work, you can visit Mikeandavina.com. My last name is spelled I N D O V I N A. So, check that out. And uh, on there, you'll get a little bit of my discography, some samples of stuff I've done. If you're willing, if you're looking to learn more about improving your mixes, whether you're a musician or an engineer, check out MasterYourMix.com. And on there, I've got a free download for your audience. If you visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash blueprint, I've got something I've put together. It's called the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It shows people how to use EQ and compression on a variety of instruments in your mix and walks you through the different characteristics of sound that you're going to hear for each instrument and what frequencies to pay attention to. So if you're wondering, you know, how do I get the kick drum beater to cut through the mix a little more? It's going to show you exactly what to pay attention to. That's great. Check that out. Um, Also, there is the brand new book as well, The Mixing Mindset. So that's available on Amazon. Or you can visit masteryourmix.com forward slash mixing mindset book. And that'll also take you to where you can get it. And what else is there? That's pretty much it. I mean, feel free to, if anyone's listening to this and wants to hit me up, like reach out to me on Facebook. I'm always on there and I'm always accessible. I just like talking to people. That's
1: great. And Rockstars, if you're not already using Kindle to read, I I encourage you to explore it because it's so easy. If you have the Kindle app on your phone. You you could literally hit pause on this podcast episode, swipe over, go to Amazon, find the book, buy it for wh- however much it is, swipe back and keep listening. And then that's what I do when I find stuff I really love, like, like the book you're writing, where it gives me the chance to put these into my queue. And then I come back later and it's like, there's that book um, that I was, sure. that we were talking about. So that's great, man. Yeah.
0: Well, Yeah, and also, sorry, uh, you mentioned yeah. the podcast, so I should probably Oh yeah, please do, well. please do. So yeah, I have uh, the Master Your Mix podcast, and uh, on there I interview a lot of different engineers because I think it's really important to learn from a lot of different people and kind of find your own sound as a result of the lessons you learn from everyone else. So uh, make sure to check that out.
1: Um, so then I'm going to go listen to the Sylvia Massey episode, and Rockstars, I encourage you to do that. Um, I'm trying to get Sylvia to come on my show too, so I know she, she's doing super cool stuff.
0: Yeah, she's doing a lot of great stuff. Um, thanks so
1: much, Mike, for joining us on the podcast. Totally awesome hanging with you. Can't wait to see you in the studio. Are you coming down to Nashville at some point? Will you be here for summer n.a.m. or anything like that?
0: I will actually be coming to Nashville, I think, at least, uh, probably around July or August. Uh, I'm getting married in October. Oh, congrats, man. I, Nashville's, thank you. Nashville is my favorite city in the world, so uh, I try to go there at least once a year, so I'm trying to get my buddies to go down there for a bachelor party week
1: yeah well they say it's the number one bachelorette party location oh, in insane. the world so you should yeah all, you the, should all just, those pedal taverns you should switch it to a bachelorette party for yourself and your friends and then there come on go. come on down and do it there <laughs> 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 all right man great to talk to you um all i'll right, see you around the studio man cheers cheers man right, thanks you